This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Track FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trackfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me as ever is my co-host Clara Cook. Hi Clara. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. What's the weather like over in Balham where you are? Uh, Well it's been raining so there's a big storm cloud. I don't know whether it's coming or it's going. It's a very very pink sky with big clouds. So there's, there's been a storm there today? Well there's been rain. There's been rain there today. Yes. You sure about that? <laughs> I did get wet, so yeah. <laughs> I have a wet umbrella to prove that it rained. Because you see, I watched the BBC forecast and uh, it told me that there wasn't going to be rain in London today. So you sure you wouldn't like to reconsider that answer? Uh, no, because I trust my eyes and I trust my senses. And I think the BBC maybe have maybe was mistaken. Last chance to retract the statement that there was rain in Ballam today. Uh, No, I stand by it to my grave. (laughs) Okay, okay, good for you. Well, listeners, for anyone who's who's wondering, no, we're not doing Star Trek meets who wants to be a millionaire today, but we are looking at another situation where someone's uh, confidence in their own judgment might be uh, put to the test in that way. We're looking at the Voyager episode, Distant Origin, and its own distant origin, I suppose, in the life of Galileo Galilei. Uh, So good they named him twice. Galileo Galilei, of course, the scientist, I suppose we'd say, one of the kind of founding fathers uh, of science, and a man who was really put to the test of his own scientific beliefs uh, and ultimately forced to kind of confront an institution that wasn't really willing to listen to those at the time. I was wondering, Clara, do you want to give the listeners a little bit of background on Galileo Galilei? So Galileo was born in 1564 in Pisa and he died in Arcetri in 1642. He was a philosopher, he was an astronomer and a scientist and also a mathematician. Uh, he was a devout Roman Catholic, so I think a lot of people think of him as a scientist who fought against the church, but actually he was very religious himself. He believed the earth orbited the sun, contrary to the religious beliefs of the time, which is that all the celestial bodies, so that's all the planets, including the sun, orbited the earth, and the earth is the centre of the universe, because like God created man, and God created the earth, and therefore God created the focal point of the entire universe, which was earth. Uh, so obviously we all know that's not true now, (laughs) 
because of astronomy and space travel and science. But at the time, the idea that the Earth orbited the sun would have been fairly uh, going against the religious beliefs of the time. Interestingly, he did not believe that the moon played a part in the tides, which is also a, a, a scientific belief that was um, actually pushed forward at the time. And he was uninterested in elliptical orbits of the planets. But... Well, we won't hold that against him. We won't hold that. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm going to hold that against him, even though I'm not even sure what that kind of means. But um, no, I'm not 100% sure what it means. I'm guessing it means that they weren't going in perfect circles. No, yeah, they're kind of going in. All the the, the various theories of the solar system, I think. They're going in uh, egg-shaped orbits, I think. Exactly, sort of egg-shaped and also slightly different orbits and so on. But Yeah, so he, um, so the Aristotle, Aristotelian, they call it, I'm sure I'm saying this wrong, geocentric view of, of, of the Earth is that the Earth is the centre of the universe and that all planets and the Sun revolve around the Earth, whereas Galileo believed and stated a heliocentrism, heliocentric view, so it's called heliocentrism, helio meaning, obviously, the Sun, and that was the idea that everything revolves around the Sun. So it's interesting because there are parallels with a lot of stuff that's happening now, like with people not believing science or scientific theories uh, you know, and this kind of movement, this like sort of, I say movement, I think it's quite small, of a number of people who sort of still actually believe the earth is flat and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's weird that this is happening sort of hundreds and hundreds of years later. But the main point was that Galileo was going against the religious belief at the time, but also sort of a long held traditional belief. And he was in the end up being sort of brought to trial for his beliefs and although we'll argue whether it was actually just for the science and maybe not that he also sort of offended the Pope um, and the church itself. And then obviously the church was so powerful in those days, he faced an inquisition and then ended up in house arrest for the rest of his life and couldn't publish anything else, which was kind of sad. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> poor Galileo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It didn't work out so well for him. Though obviously, uh, you know, the, benefit of history and the the verdict of history has has kind of gone in his favor we'd have to say it's interesting you brought up the flat earthers and climate change was the thing that i was thinking going back to this voyager episode again i feel like watching it today it's sort of um impossible not to have that at the back of your mind even though this is not i mean star trek has done kind of eco episodes before and this is certainly not really one of them but just because it's an example that we have in the real world now where you know you have the kind of um I mean, actually, unlike in the thing in, in Galileo's time is it's not like all the scientists were saying one thing. He was sort of struggling to get support in some ways because it was all a lot more political, a lot more like you see actually in the Voyager episode where it's all about, you know, oh, our supporters are abandoning us and, you know, no one's willing to stick their neck out. No one's really willing to stand up for this. But absolutely that idea we get today of kind of the informed scientists on the one hand saying, well, look, this is what the evidence shows. This is what we studied. This is what we've observed. And someone else saying, no, 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 I don't believe that. I don't want to hear it kind of, you know, almost sticking their fingers in their ears, essentially, which is really what you see certainly going on uh, in the Voyager episode is that idea of the, you know, the Voth, uh, the minister, basically saying, I don't want to hear this and and kind of squashing the science and saying, well, I can find scientists who say the opposite, which of course is what we have, you know, again, in the present day uh, with climate change, very similar. But the other thing it made me think of is, I suppose, in between those two battles, the whole battle over evolution. And I was sort of wondering, the more I looked into Galileo and the more I found that the story of Galileo was maybe a little bit more complex than the kind of straightforward 
science versus religion that I'd always assumed it was, and that I think this episode is kind of uh, drawing on. The more it started making me think, what you know, what is Galileo to us in the twenty, well, twenty first century, but or in the twentieth century when this Star Trek episode was being made, and how much is it really about Galileo the man in history, and how much is it about this kind of myth of Galileo and what he stands for? And it reminded me a little bit of the very first episode of Primitive Culture that Tony and I did about Oppenheimer, where actually the more we dug into Oppenheimer, the more we found that that when you look at how uh, Oppenheimer is kind of adapted in popular culture. It's the myth of Oppenheimer. It's this kind of idea of what Oppenheimer represents. And I suppose with Galileo, you might say there's some of the same things that almost the myth of Galileo is more important to us today than the man himself. And in some ways than anything that he actually discovered in an odd way, it's more what he stands for and what he means to us. And that's why he ends up being this kind of, um, character that can be kind of reinvented and reimagined and, you know, can crop up in the Delta Quadrant in the 24th century because the writers of Voyager thought they were struggling to work out what to do in this episode. And apparently it was Rick Berman wandered into the room and said, make it about Galileo. And that was the answer. And they were like, okay, fine, we can do that. And everyone knew what that meant somehow. So I, I just wonder whether there's this kind of distinction between Galileo, the real historical figure, and Galileo, like in capital letters, almost like what, what Galileo means to us. Well, yeah, so I don't think that uh, this story is completely, utterly like a reinterpretation of history into science fiction. I think, I also don't think that this is completely, utterly about Galileo. It's really about the whole idea of sort of science versus tradition or progress versus tradition, change versus no change, change versus the status quo, or even something like um, intellectual freedom versus ideology. And I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about when I started reading about Galileo, which my very brief amount of research, I must admit, um, because I, I didn't really learn much about Galileo in school, which I, I find kind of shocking now that I've read a bit about him, uh, is that it wasn't always just his theories that were the problems. It was a problem. It was that people were following the Bible and the Bible was like the utmost authority in terms of basically instruction or science or maths or anything basically the bible was the key text and because the bible sort of asserted that it didn't the bible doesn't say the earth is the center of the world but it's sort of you can read into it and think it think it does say that and it sort of asserted that basically that god created the earth and so and god created man in his image and so god would make us the center of the universe we're the most important thing and what galileo went on to state was that the bible was an authority on faith and morality, but not on science. And so he drew quite a clear distinction between science, faith, and morality. So though he was quite a religious man, and he actually wanted to follow the Bible, um, and he had no problem with religion, he didn't believe that the Bible was actually telling a scientific truth, or could be used as evidence to justify a scientific theory. And I think that, more than almost anything else, is one of the things that got him in trouble. Um, is that the questioning of the Bible? I mean, I think the theory that he had of, um, heliocentrism actually existed for a long time, for a while. And there were a fair number of other people who also believed the same thing or talked about it. But once he started saying, well, you know, you know, the Bible can be followed as a, as a moral, a, a moral directive or a, a moral instruction manual, but it can't be used. It's not the highest authority on science. The highest authority of science is something else, evidence or 
scientists or experimentation or whatever, or questioning things. And I think that's what really got him in trouble. And I think this episode simplifies it, simplifies that idea so that it's presented in a very, I would say, very easy way for a TV audience to understand, especially to do, especially in a sort of, sort of scientific context, which is basically progress versus tradition. You know, like, do you follow your, your traditions that have been stood by you for centuries or do you sometimes break some of those traditions so that you can progress and move your society forward? And what the, the Gagan, the scientist, the sort of, I guess they would call it lizard, Ga- lizard Galileo, like the lizard, Ga- lizard scientist. He, um, he wants to, fi- well, he's really interested in the truth and he wants to progress his, his people forward using a scientific truth, um, which he has a theory, he has a hypothesis which is progressive, and then he finds the evidence to prove that. And the thing that interests me, and you talked about climate change, is that he almost does this without considering the feelings of any of the people that he works with or the people in his culture. And scientists often do this. They come up with a scientific theory and the evidence without thinking about maybe perhaps the emotional impact it's going to have on the population. But like with climate change, people have all these opinions about climate change. But climate change doesn't doesn't care science doesn't care about your opinion it's going to science is going to happen regardless of how you feel about it and so i felt that was a really interesting point there that like gagan in a way he's concerned about convincing the authorities of his theories because he wants to progress the society of his people and he doesn't want his research you know to be dismissed and he doesn't want to be assigned to a different type of work and but at the same time he knows this is going to upset people. He doesn't care because he's like, it's the truth and it's a scientific truth. And in order for us to face scientific truth and the future, we have to be able to deal with the feelings that we have about, about like our traditions being kind of changed, if that makes sense. Kind of the science doesn't lie almost. And it, it, it is, I suppose, in some ways you could say that is almost a kind of philosophical attitude. And it's interesting, it just occurred to me, you, you know, I was talking about the myth of Galileo. Of course, a lot of it, what you're calling tradition, another way of looking at it is myth. I mean, a lot of this episode hinges on this idea of the Voth having this kind of their own sort of creation myth or their own kind of myth about themselves as a society, that they were born into this area of space, that they have some kind of almost, sounds like sort of almost a divine right to rule there. And that's why the minister get so angry at the idea she says we are not immigrants they're so furious at the idea there's this kind of implication that the store their their story is being challenged and Chakotay has this kind of bit at the end where he tries to get them to almost reinterpret the story or or replace it with another story that is equally a kind of noble story but so there is this element of kind of science as kind of myth busting i suppose as kind of undermining these things and i think you're right that for galileo he didn't really see what he was doing as essentially in confrontation with the church at all really what he was taking on as I understand it, is more the philosophers. I mean, we think of it as religion on one side and science on the other. But I think from my reading into this area, actually what was going on with Galileo was there was a kind of third prong and that was the philosophers. And there was a kind of real difference of approach between the philosophers who would kind of reason their way to conclusions about the reality of the world and the universe um, and someone like Galileo, who was, rather than trying to reason his way through it, was trying to perform experiments. He was testing things. He was dropping things and seeing how fast they fall. Uh, he was, I mean, a lot of this stuff about the Earth not being the centre of the 
of the solar system or of the universe came from constructing a telescope. He managed to, um, someone else in Holland, I think, had created the first sort of usable telescope, but he found out about it. He um, developed his own spin on it. He managed to um, improve it very much. He, he made a telescope that was 30 times more powerful, for example, and by using this telescope, he was able to observe things about the universe. He was able to observe the surface of the moon and see that it wasn't perfectly flat. He was able to observe that the fact that Jupiter has its own moons, which no one had realised up until that point. All these things that he was observing that no one, literally no one had ever seen before because they hadn't had the technology to see them and that were questioning the kind of received worldview. And I think really a, a lot of what was going on there was this kind of dispute between the philosophers who were all kind of backing Aristotle and Aristotle obviously being this kind of ancient philosopher who'd laid down the kind of philosopher's understanding of the world. And almost um, Galileo is kind of from this slightly different approach where you're literally, you know, you're measuring things, you're testing things. You know, he's he's really more of a physicist, essentially. He He's really a scientist, as we would understand it. Um, and it's interesting, even when you go back to the kind of judgment against his teachings, because there was a kind of, there was an initial judgment, which basically the, the uh, upshot of that was that he wasn't allowed to teach the idea that the sun was at the, at the centre of things. Okay. Uh, and that came out of this judgment, which said, I've got it in front of me. It said that the sun is in the centre of the world and totally immovable as to locomotion. That was the first kind of proposition. Censure. All say that the said proposition is foolish and absurd in philosophy and formally heretical in as much as it conducts the express opinion of holy scriptures. So on the one hand, it offends the philosophers. And on the other hand, it also offends uh, the holy scriptures. And then the second proposition that the earth is neither in the centre of the world nor immovable, but moves as a whole and in daily motion. Censure. All say this proposition receives the same censure in philosophy and with regard to theological verity, it is at least erroneous in the faith. But so there's this kind of dual element to it. And I think for I think for Galileo, really, he almost expected the church to stay out of this fight. He kind of knew he was picking a fight with the philosophers to some extent. And by the time you get to his dialogue, which is, is really kind of incendiary uh, work, he's writing in the form of a philosophical dialogue to present this information. And I think that's one reason that his approach was more controversial. I mean, you're right, Copernicus had already it essentially laid down in theory how this this idea of how the, of the sun being at the centre of things would work. But it was Galileo who was much more uh, problematic. And from my understanding, is really he kind of expected the church to stay out of it. And I think you see that in the Voyager episode as well, where Gagan is saying, you know, this isn't really an issue about about you and about doctrine and all this stuff. This is just science. You know, it, it's, it's almost this kind of naivety. He, he, he says something like that, you know, you don't need to concern yourself with this. I, I'm not concerning myself with religion or with, it's it's not religion in the Voyager episode, it's, it's doctrine, which is, I suppose, a bit more general. If this was DS9, it would be absolutely, it would be religion and science. Here, they interestingly make it kind of doctrine or received uh, understanding and science. But but he's basically saying exactly what Galileo was saying. You, you know, there need not be any quarrel between us. Uh, we don't need to fight over this. And they're saying, no, you can't do that. You You can't uh, pursue this without being aware of the implications for our, our understanding for doctrine. You can't be aware, not aware of these kind of broader implications. And I think in some ways that is the situation that, that Galileo was in was he sort of thought that the, that the truth would be enough somehow rather than recognizing the kind of enormously complicated politics that were going on around all these issues. Yeah. And that does kind of bring us back to like the whole issue of climate change as well. And I mean, I guess in, in distant origin, I'm not quite sure 
what the issue is with not accepting the truth. I understand that it affects their politics and their doctrine and their culture, but it, I mean, are they all going to suddenly abandon their home world and start looking for Earth? I mean, if that was going to be the case, then, you know, then there's a, there's a big risk to believing the truth and, and to confronting the truth. But in the case of like today in modern day, um, like the world, contemporary world with climate change, um, if you don't believe in the truth and you, and you don't confront the truth, uh, especially the scientific truth, uh, then you risk disaster, don't you? So in a way, like the truth, it's there whether you like it or not. And I, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about science. You know, it's science can be inconvenient. A scientific truth can be inconvenient, but science is objective. It doesn't um care what you think or what you feel so you can be like i don't like the idea of uh, of all the planetary bodies revolving around the sun but science doesn't <laughs> science doesn't care it doesn't care how you feel about that it's gonna exist anyway so you know you get a lot of people sort of saying like i don't believe in climate change or um i don't i, I don't i don't think climate change should be number one priority um, on the legislative agenda of any government I think it should be something else. And I don't, I don't feel that strongly about climate change. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter actually what you think or what you feel because it's coming anyway. It will affect you anyway. And actually sooner than you think. So a scientific truth is kind of devoid of feeling. And it sort of seems interesting that in this episode, he has scientific truth, which is evolution, you know, and then his, the actual authorities have tradition but they also have this emotion it's, it's fear or it's anger or it's it's um outrage but it's their emotion you know they're so they're fighting scientific truth with emotion and it, at the end of the day even if they discredit him and they hide his work and they reassign him to some other kind of scientific work the truth is still there they still evolved from dinosaurs on earth which, by the way, is a crazy, crazy concept. And I can't believe Star Trek managed <laughs> to get away with this. But they actually did. I actually felt like it seems quite believable in the episode. And after I watched the episode, I was like, what? But I love the, what I love about that. it is the way that Janeway is just like, no, you know, Janeway's sort of archetypal scientist. Janeway's just like, wow, how interesting. This is amazing. Great science. Let's, <laughs> let's do the science. You know, yeah, totally on board. You know, no question about it. Uh, it's, it's like, this is a mind blowingly bizarre concept <laughs> that the episode presents us with. And they have the kind of, you know, the, the most sciencey scientists on the show, essentially basically just saying, yeah, no, that's fine. We'll give, give that a pass. That's definitely what happened. Uh, <laughs> but it does. I mean, it's, it's true. It's strange how, um, it, it is a wacky, like it is a wacky star trek idea for an episode but at the same time the episode really sells it i think and, and maybe it's partly the way that it's done because it does have this very interesting structure where it flips things on its head you know we see that literally the first 15 minutes first third of the episode uh no voyager crew members in it you know it's just seen entirely from the kind of voth perspective and i think maybe that helps to kind of sell this slightly crazy idea because it's kind of already 
uh, we're seeing it from a different perspective. We're, we're seeing it in a different way somehow. But it's interesting. It's an interesting point, you know, because obviously the sort of storyline of the episode is like trying to get these people to open their eyes to this outlandish theory. I mean, as far as the Voth are concerned, this is an outlandish theory. And you're right. As far as any sane viewer is concerned, this idea that, you know, a secret group of dinosaurs evolved to develop uh, space travel and left Earth before humans came along is a sort of patently absurd theory. And yet for the episode to succeed, we have to be so flexible and willing, at least for the in, for the purposes of suspending disbelief, we have to be willing to watch that and to accept it. And it's kind of interesting, you know, there's this repeated refrain, uh, eyes open, you know, this idea of being kind of open to new ideas. And I suppose when you were talking about climate change and people denying that and people using emotion to kind of block out science and block out the truth, that is really the, the theme, I suppose, is uh, that kind of blinkered People who are blinkering themselves by choice, who are basically saying, I choose not to engage with this. I choose not to see this. And, and the, the, the minister in the episode, um, she, she has this line, when I open my eyes to this theory, what I see appalls me. Uh, I see my race fleeing your wretched planet, a group of pathetic refugees. So there's this element of kind of racism built into it as well. And, and we see in the episode all this kind of uh, sort of hostility towards warm blooded beings. So there's a kind, there's a kind of racism baked into this society in a sense. But it definitely gives this idea of the the links between, yes, these kind of prejudices behind these kind of myths about where they come from. And obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of that recently in the world about the the kind of ideas that people have about, you, you know, who, who is the kind of native population of a particular country and what is, what, what on earth does that mean in many uh, instances? Who considers themselves to be the kind of rightful uh, inhabitants of a particular country and not someone who's arrived from elsewhere. But, but we see absolutely that idea of of those who don't want to acknowledge the truth, who don't want to see, who want to keep their eyes closed, who want to keep themselves blinkered. And I think you're right. A lot of it is, is there's this sense of they're, they're fighting these things with emotions, with fear and with rage and so on. But there's also this sense, uh, again, I think in the Voyager episode and, and to some extent in, in Galileo's story, because a lot of it was about the church and the kind of, and a particular pope in the church and the kind of power machinations in the church. A lot of it is about power. And I think the strong implication of the Voyager episode is that the reason the minister is so threatened by this is, is partly because it undermines this kind of, uh, sort of racist ideology that their society appears to be founded on to some extent. But it's also, there's an implication that these ministers who seem to be, they, they seem to have a lot of kind of, I, I don't know, there's, there's something quite old fashioned about them. There's, they've got this great throne. They've got this kind of, uh, they, they seem like this quite ancient ruling force somehow. There's this kind of implication that some kind of political or social change is likely to follow in the event that the society really does go forward with its eyes open and, and reevaluates itself and that that will kind of change. It won't just, it, it won't just change kind of the, the prehistory of their own civilization, it will change the future as well, because it will affect, for example, their attitude towards other, you know, warm-blooded species, of which we know there are plenty around in the Delta Quadrant, for example. The assumption is that it's going to change their kind of, um, you know, political structure in some way. So, so I suppose that's why it's seen as being kind of threatening, is that it's not just threatening on a kind of philosophical level, it's threatening on a sort of societal level as well. And I think absolutely with something like climate change, you know, the people who don't want to believe in climate change are the people who are in power or have vested interest in not acknowledging that or in not uh, recognising these things, because it will, you know, they will have to make sacrifices in order to try to 
turn things around. So there's always an element of like, you know, who is, who is benefiting from the status quo? And in this situation, part of what's, what works quite well, I think, in the Voyager story is actually to begin with, I mean, Gagan is quite naive. I think he sort of assumes that if he gives them enough evidence, they will say, Oh, all right. Fair enough. You, you're clearly right. Uh, and, and it will be that straightforward. You know, the science will kind of trump everything else. What he doesn't realize is that ultimately politics and power is going to trump science. And, you know, what we see in the case of the Voth as well is this, um, quite striking representation of a, I mean, not just a society and a culture that is sort of technologically sophisticated and powerful, but, but this kind of raw power. I mean, they literally beam Voyager inside their ship. That's how big their ship is. And that's how powerful and advanced they are. Everything the Voyager crew tries to do to kind of fight them uh, is hopeless. You know, they get nowhere with them. They're this massively advanced civilization. And there is that real sense of the kind of raw power that they wield. They can make threats. They can threaten to destroy the ship. They can threaten to imprison everyone. Uh, and there's the possibility that they could do that. Um, yeah, so you're exactly right. Minister Odala, who's the woman that, I say the woman, <laughs> the reptile woman, the female dinosaur, evolved female humanoid dinosaur, who uh, who's like the main, I think like the lead minister, uh, who questions Gagan. Her mission is to preserve the status quo and keep tradition and doctrine the main focus of society. I felt very much like doctrine was the main focus of the society. And obviously if doctrine rather than scientific truth is the main focus of society, then uh, she stays in power. So you're right. It's all about power. I felt like she was, I mean, it's a little bit like Galileo questioning the Bible. The Bible can't be questioned if the whole like political system is based around the Pope who is God, God's representative on on earth. I mean, the whole, the whole, we, we don't see it now. I mean, kind of, but not as much, but you know, people forget that, you know, in the Renaissance era, like the, the Pope was one of the most powerful people in the entire world. The Pope had not just wealth, he had political power. He had moral power. He had basically power, almost everybody the, the Pope was kind of a little bit like a King. Uh, and, you know, until people started pulling away from the Catholic church, and, you know, different countries and regimes and mono- uh, monarchies and stuff like that. Until that started happening, the Pope was pretty much like almost like an emperor. I mean, some of the early popes used to be called like the Holy Roman Emperor. You know, I mean, it's, it's, he had the most power. So in the Bible is what gives him power. It's, it's the text that keeps everybody in line. So I do feel like Gagan is questioning without meaning to, he's questioning the power, questioning the power structure of the Voth, like you said. I did have a slight problem with how technologically advanced the Voth were in this episode, because how did the Voth become so technologically advanced while embracing an ideology that worships tradition? I thought that was a bit strange. I mean, and preserving the status quo, like if you, if you have a sort of society that embraces the status quo and maintains the status quo, then how do you develop scientifically in terms of technology? Like, how do you develop such superior technology? I mean, maybe they, I guess they had much longer than humans because they were a much older, older species. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually, I sort of was nitpicking that, but I'm not sure that's the most concerning element of this entire episode. I mean, the fact that there was a, a very advanced dinosaur society on earth that got completely covered somehow or obliterated by an asteroid and yet didn't quite die and then they managed to build ships and then fly away from earth into a different quadrant but 
But... Also, bear in mind, they've got a big advantage on us because <laughs> when Janeway and Paris went at warp 10, they, they, they built a transwarp system and they ended up uh, turning into lizards. These guys, <laughs> that's no problem. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's maybe just the dino a... DNA protects them from the dangers of transwarp and therefore their, you cold know, their blood. society moves forward. They're yeah. cold, they're cold. Blood. Yeah, the cold blood. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, so obviously part of this episode is about intellectual freedom, right? Because it's not just about science. Um, it's about the ability to put forward a scientific theory because Gagan's in trouble even before he has the evidence. You know, it's kind of implied that he's skating on thin ice before then. Like he has his supporters, which implies that he needs supporters in a society in which his theories are not going down well. So that's about intellectual freedom, isn't it? It's about the ability to study something or research something that perhaps maybe is unpopular or is not deemed important by people in authority or systems of authority. And... That is very interesting to me because I work in a university. I work with a lot of faculty and they all have research projects and they all have research interests. And there's a lot of talk of intellectual freedom. There's a lot of concern that people might be have their intellectual freedom curbed because they're going to be researching something that's either going to be unpopular because it's going to call into question uh, business, big businesses, or they're going to be researching something that's going to be unpopular politically or ideologically. And in recent years, there has been a real concern that academics should be protected and that they should be able to publish things uh, that may be controversial and they should be able to study things that may be controversial. And Gagan's theories probably aren't going to hurt anybody and his scientific truth isn't going to hurt anybody. It might take some of the power away from Minister Odala. It might completely revolutionise their society. But there's no, there is no implication, like I was saying earlier, that they're all going to leave the home world and like die in space or something. But sometimes intellectual freedom can mean that people can research quite controversial things that can be quite harmful. Like I'm thinking of, um, you know, people doing research about sort of research that could be considered, I don't know, a little bit risque, like you know, there are some faculty that research sort of like they're doing, they're doing sociological research, like into different ethnic groups and whether or not different ethnic groups succeed at this or succeed at that. And they're starting to get close to sort of like a eugenics territory. Do you know what I mean? So, and sometimes you do think that some of that stuff could be harmful. I, and then there's also the implication as well with intellectual freedom, which is scientists are able to research or look into anything they want to look into. And they come up with a theory and then they, they're not stringent enough and they're not um, strict enough with their, with their work and they end up producing bad science. So Gagan isn't producing bad science. It's very simple in the Star Trek episode. He has a human body or human remains and he can do the work and he can study it and he can then prove it. it is a scientific truth. But what if he'd, what if the science wasn't completely clear? What if he couldn't come up with a completely clear scientific truth? What if it was like, well, maybe we are from earth but maybe we're from some other home world or maybe, um, you know, I don't know. Like, like what if it wasn't completely clear, you know, and then he just asserted it anyway, then that's bad science. And that sort of stuff can lead to lots of dangerous things. I don't know though. I mean, I, I'm no expert on science or the history of science really, but I mean, my understanding is that often science has proceeded by two things, a theory 
and then evidence and proof that, you, you know, either proves or, or disproves that theory. And one of the things that's interesting about this episode is that just as Galileo did not invent the idea that the sun, that the, that the earth orbited the sun, you know, that idea was out there. Copernicus had put that idea forward. It had not been as controversial as it was when Galileo presented his evidence for it. I mean, I think part of that is that for Copernicus, it was a theory. Uh, there was no proof. It was a theory that this was uh, how things were. It was also published. It was aimed at astronomers. It wasn't aimed at the kind of general population. So it was it was it was uh, less controversial in terms of the way it was put forward. It was quite technical. I think Copernicus is writing. Uh, so it was more a sort of um, like within the trade, almost a discussion that was going on, whereas Galileo kind of um, brought this to much to, to public attention in a sense but also Galileo brought the evidence and I think a lot of times um, science has proceeded by a theory that makes sense of the evidence that we do have but kind of is is slightly a speculation in the dark and then people looking for the evidence and finding that to say right we finally can prove that this is actually you know that that, that this is actually how it is and in the Voyager episode Gagan I feel it's fairly clear. Gagan did not invent the distant origin theory. This theory has been around for a while. For whatever reason, people have been proposing this. So there must have been other things that made them question whether they really originated in that area of space. Maybe their fossil record doesn't go back far enough to explain. You, you know, there's something missing that makes them think, is it possible that we evolved somewhere else? And that theory is out there. And that theory is kind of controversial. But at the same time, it's not really dangerous because it's just a theory and and maybe, you know, even his daughter seems to think it's a bit of a far-fetched theory as, you know, you and I watching Voyager <laughs> might think in the same situation without being presented with the evidence. And really what Gagan's doing is finding the evidence. And of course, the starting point of the episode is him finding that remarkable piece of Voyager continuity. I mean, people always talk about Voyager as a show with no continuity, going all the way back to basics and finding the remains of that crewman who who died, you know, whatever that is, like half a season previously. Um, so the episode starts with him discovering the evidence, but we're kind of aware from the conversations that are going on that he's been a supporter of this distant origin theory before he had any evidence, probably, or certainly before he had any kind of concrete evidence. So there is that kind of idea. I mean, you say, is this good science or bad science? I don't really know the answer to that. But Gagan has been at least very interested in this distant origin theory before, as far as we can see, there was any concrete evidence for it, when it was literally just a theory. And I suppose that's the thing. And, you know, people would say the same thing about climate change. People, uh, some people would say the same thing about evolution, uh, you know, when is something no longer a theory and is actually scientific fact? Um, and what is it that, that is needed for, for that to happen? Is it a matter of kind of general consensus? You know, most people today believe in evolution. When those ideas were first propounded, most people probably didn't. I mean, most people today, I know you said that, you know, there's some who believe the earth is flat or whatever. Even they, I think, believe that the earth the flat earth orbits the sun. I, I don't know. We'd have to ask a flat earther, but you, you know, some of these things are kind of societally, our, our understandings change. But I mean, you know, Galileo grew up believing that, uh, the sun was going around the earth because that's what it looks like. And, and most people, you know, m most children, probably, if you ask them to, <laughs> if you ask them to really think about it and work out what was going on, they would assume that was happening because they can see the sun moving around in the sky throughout the course of the day. So it's that kind of, on a personal level, the, the, the point of changing your mind. And we don't see in the episodes the point at which Gagan starts to believe in the distant origin theory, which he must have grown up thinking was a kind of crackpot idea that had no basis to it. We see him when he's already kind of signed up to it 
but at the point where finally he's got the evidence that means that people are going to take it seriously. And if there's any doubt, you know, we have Janeway and the doctor doing the science at their end and saying, you know, and Chakotay basically saying, well, you can dispute Gagan's findings and say this is kind of circumstantial and this this could be random, but we have a complete fossil record on Earth and there's no way you can account for the 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 amount of correlation between these two things and i suppose that's often what it comes down to isn't it is it's kind of a bit like with the climate change you you know it's it's like saying yes you can dispute one individual piece of evidence but when there's so much evidence pointing in a particular direction you can't really just pretend that it's not saying what it's what it's clearly saying i felt like janeway and the voyager crew were like a scientific peer review do you know what i mean like so that's the whole point i think is that scientists also have to have their work reviewed by other scientists and like you say there also has to be multiple pieces of scientific evidence that goes forward to support a theory you can't just have a theory have one study and then be like we're done and dusted that study has to be reviewed by other people in the same field with the same expertise and also there has to be other studies done and where you just have and by bad science i mean a scientist comes up with a theory is so desperate to prove that theory that they they do the testing, they do the research, and then although it may not be completely, con- it's not completely conclusive, but they draw conclusions anyway. And I'm thinking of like the whole thing that started off this idea that vaccines are linked to um, autism, which has led to, and as people will know, in the most recent weeks, um, both in America and in other parts of the world, it's led to the rise of illnesses that we didn't have I mean, I'm thinking of measles, the measles outbreak, where, you know, rises, rises of like illnesses where, you know, there was a natural, there was a herd immunity because almost everybody was vaccinated against like the same disease or the same illness. And therefore people weren't catching it because everybody was vaccinated. And as soon as you have a whole bunch of people that aren't vaccinated, uh, maybe they don't catch it, but they, you know, they might be a carrier or they might have it and then, and then they might pass it on to somebody who's too young to be vaccinated, that kind of thing. So that is a situation where bad science leads to actual bad ramifications, you know. Now, Gagan, obviously, his scientific theory isn't going to destroy or make the VOF people ill. But there is something to be said for having a theory first rather than evidence of something first and i do feel like sometimes scientists will something will happen they'll think that's strange why is that happening and then they'll go out and they'll record the data and they'll come back and then they'll have to come up with a theory afterwards as to why the date why this has happened based on the data say for instance i don't know a whole bunch of birds have changed their migration somebody might notice the birds have changed their migration and they're like why has that happened and they might have to record that data and then later on come back and come up with a theory as to why that's happened. And then they'll have to do more research to prove their theory or whatever. But sometimes it isn't always that people are sitting there philosophizing and they come up with a theory <laughs> and then they have to go find the evidence to prove it. So I'd be curious to ha- understand like how this like distant origin theory started with the boss. I mean, was it that there was actually some historical or scientific record way back in the annals of of Voth history that people had long since forgotten about. Perhaps there was a myth about them, you know, traveling along distances in space. And somebody would have said, well, why is that? That myth exists. Maybe we could have come from somewhere else. And then that theory may have come out of that. And then they might have, I don't know, 
So I've decided to look for the evidence then. I mean, it's a it's like a chicken and egg situation. Like what comes first, the theory or the science, the theory or the evidence? Um, or is this, or is it that the science, sometimes the science comes first and you've got to come up with a theory as to why that exists or why that's happened. So I think that's what I meant by bad science was that people are so desperate to prove a theory that they maybe come up with evidence that's inconclusive or evidence that isn't properly scrutinized by scientific colleagues and peers. And then they sort of say, yep, I've proven this theory. And you look at it and you think, have you though? You know, and obviously climate change doesn't apply. That doesn't apply to climate change because there is lots of stuff happening climate change wise around the world that people still don't completely have a theory for. They're just observing phenomena and then they're sort of saying, actually, this is linked to this or this is linked to that. Also, one of the things that isn't addressed in the Star Trek episode is that tradition does have a place in society. A tradition is also important. I wouldn't say it's more important than scientific truth, especially not if refusing to believe a scientific truth is actually going to end up destroying our planet or is actually going to end up um, keeping corrupt people in power or corrupt um, institutions in, in power. But tradition does have a place in society and it, it brings communities, communities together. It gives people a purpose, uh, it gives people roles in society. It helps sometimes to keep people like civilized, if that makes sense. It means that like traditions, traditions often are, well, sometimes they are centered around moral beliefs. And then, so that does mean like that people do tend to abide by laws or rules because of tradition. I suppose the problem is when tradition flies in the face of scientific truth and isn't flexible enough to evolve and adapt, then you've got a bad situation in your hand. Then you have people like the Voff ministers silencing Gagan and preventing him from continuing to do his scientific studies. Well, I think it's interesting that Chakotay is the one who gets kidnapped by Gagan. I mean, and and this is a good Chakotay episode, I'd say. I mean, Chakotay doesn't get that many great episodes in Voyager, but this is definitely one of them. And it's interesting that what happens during that trial scene is it's not just, as I say, it's not just science versus religion. It's not just science versus kind of orthodoxy or, or, or versus kind of received opinion or tradition, as you say, but, but it is very much tied up in this idea of myths and, uh, stories that we tell about ourselves and, and this idea of not just tradition as kind of practice, but as this kind of understanding that we have about ourselves, really. And what Chakotay, um, says at the end, is he tries to make this case, which I, I don't know that anyone else from the Voyager crew would really have been able to make of saying that you don't have to abandon your kind of pride in yourselves. You don't have to kind of see this as a case of losing something. You can create a new myth. You can create a new kind of tradition, a new kind of um, understanding about who you are. And what he says basically is he gives this vision. He's easily of these, you know, ancient dinosaurs, uh, leaving earth, leaving the solar system. And he says they boldly launched themselves into space. I mean, he literally uses the word boldly, uh, which as we know in Star Trek is like the iconic adverb, I suppose. <laughs> uh, you, you know, they, they have boldly gone long before the humans ever boldly went. He kind of makes this link for us, in a sense, between the Voth, the kind of heroism of the ancient Voth, and Starfleet, and kind of our our own idea of, of what being kind of noble and brave and courageous is um, 
in the Star Trek universe. Uh, and he says, don't deny the struggles and achievements of their ancestors. And that is absolutely kind of peak Chakotay in a way. You know, no one other than him would be in such a strong position to make that because we know how tied in he is with his own ancestry and his own, you know, the history of his people and so on. And really, that I think is why it's Chakotay in this episode. And it's weird. He says at one point, he says to Gagan, I'm a scientist too. Well, I don't know to what extent Chakotay is a scientist. I'm sure he took like the odd science class at Starfleet Academy because you had to. But I mean, we, we, we haven't seen all that much evidence of that, as I would say. He's had a bit of an interest in anthropology, maybe, but he, he's not primarily a scientist. But what he is, is this very kind of someone with a real understanding of kind of tradition, the past, history, genealogy, not just myth on a kind of societal level, but on a personal level, you know, what, what do your ancestors mean to you? What do your ancestors say about you? And therefore he's the one who's able to say to the Voth, look, it sounds to me like what your ancestors did was pretty impressive and you should be proud of them and you should celebrate them. Um, and you should really recognize what a kind of people they were. And it's interesting insofar as the Voth are kind of the antagonists, you, you know, and they're not very, um, Star Trek in some ways, you know, yes, they're technologically sophisticated, but they're kind of um, slightly morally backward as a society. They do seem to have this kind of racist uh, attitude encoded into their, their ideas. Even Gagan says basically, you know, well, I always look down on, um, you know, mammals basically, but then I'd never actually spoken to one before. So they, they've got this these kind of negative qualities. At the same time, the ancient Voth, you know, Chakotay is absolutely pitching in very kind of Star Trek terms, you know, these heroic individuals who, who had great ingenuity managed to escape from this seemingly dying planet, managed to launch themselves into space, managed to basically, you know, boldly go back in the Cretaceous period or whatever it was. So, so he's really the guy who is able to, to make a new myth for them. And of course they reject it and it doesn't go anywhere. But, you know, we kind of hope ultimately in the future, that's how the Voth are going to be able to look back on their own kind of prehistory in that sense. And so I suppose it's interesting, you know, thinking about myth, thinking about this episode in terms of myth busting, it's also about myth creating or like making a new myth. And Star Trek, of course, is a myth itself in many ways. You know, for those of us who love it, it has a lot of those qualities, not so much where have we come from in the past, but really where are we going to in the future? And what can that tell us about us today and what how can that inform us morally societally how can that inform our understanding of each other that in some ways in the same way as you know an understanding of your people's history can inform who you feel that you are today i think in in many ways for those of us watching star trek we're kind of almost taking the same thing but in reverse we're saying that this is a vision of our future broadly speaking, we're, you know, we're pretty signed up to, and that that can almost filter back to the present and say, okay, this is what we, you know, if there's a line between like, you know, I don't know, the the dawn of human civilization at one end and Star Trek at the other, we're somewhere along that trajectory, but, you know, we're trying to go at least in the right direction. Yeah, although scientific truth at the moment would suggest that we're not heading towards there at all. And that's the problem, you see. Well, that's true. That's <laughs> the, the real problem. world is less optimistic than Star Trek. I mean, I would question why human beings, or in this case, lizard humanoids in Star Trek, feel the need to mythologize either the future or the past. I mean, why does somebody feel the need to mythologize the past? I mean, why do we like to think of the past in perhaps more heroic terms, perhaps more positive terms? Why do we like to think of the past as 
somewhere alien, but also at the same time yet familiar. Like, why do we mythologize the past? And also, why would we mythologize the future? I mean, the thing is, it's, it's easier to mythologize the past. Um, it may be harder slightly to mythologize the future, but you can do it. But one thing you can't do is mythologize the present unless you're having some sort of like flight of fancy, you know, while you're in the present, unless you're fantasizing. Unless you're Hitler or someone. I, <laughs> well, I mean, there yeah. are people who try to mythologize the present, but it, it generally leads to trouble, I'd say. Yeah. One way or another. I mean, part of the thing is, is that, is that you're living in the present, you're experiencing it right now. Whatever's happening to you right now in the present is really in your face you know it's very there so it's 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 like i mean it's the present right so scientific truth kind of exists now it exists with us now uh, and it can't be ignored just like the present can't be ignored which is perhaps maybe why people like to paint the past as something better than it was or paint the future as something that to be better or something that will be better then perhaps maybe it actually is going to be. And I think when you start thinking about the past in the real way that it actually was, it can feel quite distressing because you can start to realize the present was informed by what happened in the past. And the past was different than maybe that sheds a new light on what's happening now. And if you think about the future as what it realistically might actually be, then I don't know how anybody would really carry on because it's like seeing all the potential potholes that you could fall down into or trip all the potential hurdles you could trip over in your future life. You want to think you're going to have a very good future. You can't think of all the potential hurdles that you're going to bump into. But just because of like law of averages or just because of probability, you are going to have hurdles in the future. But you have to think beyond, you have to think positively. Otherwise, how could you continue? And I think people do have to think positively about the past too. And I guess that's where myths come in, myths come into. Uh, but actually, Sometimes the truth, like I said, scientific truth or historical truth is inconvenient. It's unpleasant and it's inconvenient for the present. It's inconvenient for the culture that we have now. It's inconvenient for the individual and a real clear, true understanding of the future means confronting something that will potentially be inconvenient, upsetting in the future. And I think climate change is inconvenient. We want to believe we're going to have a future like Star Trek, but the climate change evidence, scientific evidence is starting to become inconvenient, starting to say, no, you won't. You might not get that. Yeah. Yeah. You might have something quite different. And of course, you know, this is a piece of 90s Star Trek. I mean, I can't help thinking, I mean, when I watched this, you know, back in first run, I don't know. I do, I do wonder whether the world has changed. I mean, I think in some ways those kind of Star Trek series that were made in the 90s, they can seem quite optimistic about the future in certain ways. In the, in many respects, the future has turned out to be worse than, I mean, I, I know Star Trek says we're going to have a third world war and, you, you know, things are going to get really bad <laughs> and so on before they get better. So I don't want to simplify that. But I think in some ways, almost that 90s Trek, you can see as being, I don't know, na- naive is maybe a little bit harsh, but, but something, something like this, you know, from a 90s Trek perspective, it might feel like this is all in the past. You know, it's Galileo, it's Darwin, it's kind of these are debates that are kind of come and gone. And this is an alien society that's dealing with this. This is not a human society that's dealing with it, even if it is technically a Terran society that's dealing with it. But I, I, I don't know. In some ways, I think our, our current world feels so much more fractured, feels so much more divisive, feels so much more like it's heading in the wrong direction, ecologically, politically, in so many ways. We're in quite a different place, really, than those writers were back in the 90s. But obviously, you, you know, we can only ever see things from our own present perspective at the same time i think it's interesting you know looking at 
at, at these kind of historical issues and looking at the fact also, you know, what is it about Galileo that is significant to us? And I suppose, um, yes, you're right. You can only ever live in the present. You can have an idea of the, of the past uh, and you can have an idea of the future. But there are sort of certain times in human history, I think, where those things seem more focused somehow. And obviously the Renaissance was a time when certainly looking back at it historically, and I think it must have felt like this at the time, it suddenly felt like everyone was being pushed into the future. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that is a moment that we recognise as sort of almost the birth of, well, a lot of, certainly sort of scientific ideas, certainly like literary, cultural ideas. You, you know, it, it's it's to some degree, I mean, there's a reason they talk about the early modern period, isn't there? There's, there's some, to, to some extent, you can say that there's something has changed, you know, societally, at least on a kind of European, I was going to say globally, but certainly on a kind of European level, something has changed. And it, it is a sense of, yes, obviously we think of the Renaissance as the distant past, but at the same time, it's not as distant past as the medieval period and the dark ages and so on. And there is a sense of like, we're kind of, it's a, a moment where humanity seems to be pushing forward, I suppose, as we conceptualise it, at least. And that's arguably one reason that we're kind of fascinated by that period, not just because of the amazing things that came out of it, but because there's something exciting about it. Um, and it really struck me watching this episode again, thinking about Galileo. There are lots of kind of little um, hints to those connections. I mean, the idea, for example, of the city ship, you know, in, in that period uh, in Galileo's life, these cities were these very important kind of geopolitical structures. It's weird in Star Trek to have the city be the unit of kind of uh, the sort of um, geopolitical unit. And yet here we have a city ship. You've got little things like the assistant is called Veer, Veer being the Latin word for man, right? Which is obviously very much tied in with exactly what we're, uh, what we're talking about here in a sense. Um, you've even got that moment with the skull, which is almost like uh, Hamlet and Yorick somehow in Hamlet, the, the, the scientist talking to the skull. All this idea of like science and philosophy and literature and culture and kind of, um, all this stuff, you know, consciously or not, sort of feels slightly like it's feeding into this. And one of the things that struck me about this as well is when we were first talking about recording this episode, you and I had a bit of confusion because I said, why don't we do that episode, an episode on Galileo? And you initially thought I was... Um, thinking of Leonardo, uh, because Janeway has this whole, you know, Leonardo uh, storyline going on later, which maybe is something we could come back in a future episode to talk about Leonardo. But in some ways, they do have a lot in common. You know, Galileo and Leonardo, they are both um, very much these kind of geniuses of that kind of Renaissance period. They are very much ahead of their time. They're very much these kind of... Um, and again, quite, you know, certainly Leonardo, as he plays out in Voyager, has this kind of religious side. He does talk to Janeway about kind of, uh, you know, good and evil and all these kind of things, but also this kind of amazing scientist. Um, and I was looking into it a bit. I couldn't help thinking, did this episode in part inspire that Leonardo character who obviously, you know, comes in at the end of the third season? Um, not, not all that long after this episode, I think, and then becomes this kind of character going forward. When I looked into it, apparently Kate Mulgrew claims that she invented the character of Leonardo, in a sense, as far as Voyage is concerned, that she was the one who came up with the idea. But in one version of the story, she said that it was a conversation with Bran and Braga. And Bran and Braga and Joe Minoski both wrote this episode and wrote Scorpion, which is where Leonardo first uh, appears. 
and that that it came out of something that Brannon said to her, which was, "Where do art and science meet?" And Kate Mulgrew said, "Well, they meet in in the Renaissance and in the person of Leonardo da Vinci." If that's true, that Brannon Braga genuinely asked her that, I can't help thinking maybe he he had some inkling of where they were going with this anyway, and that he allowed Kate Mulgrew to think that she'd come up with the idea. But who knows? Either way, it seems to me like there's a definite link between the fact that Kate Mulgrew made that connection to saying that there is some kind of essential link between Janeway and the Renaissance uh, and that that's going to form this bond with Leonardo and that they're thinking about it. You know, they're doing this episode based on the story of Galileo and then they're going to have this kind of Leonardo character. There definitely seems to be something going on there that uh, the Renaissance is a period that is suddenly very appealing for Star Trek at that time. And of course, Star Trek First Contact, which was made, what, in 96? So probably, I think, broadly speaking, contemporaneously with this, the initial version of the story for Star Trek First Contact was going to have the Borg going back in time to the Renaissance, not into the kind of post-World War Three horror. So again, there was that kind of fascination with that time period. Um, and it's not a time period, I think, that Star Trek has ever actually done a time travel story to. But yet in this kind of period of uh, sort of third, fourth-ish season Voyager, it seems like a period that they're constantly drawn to one way or another. Yeah, I think you're completely right. I think the Renaissance and the idea of human beings being propelled into a future, perhaps quite quickly and quite quite suddenly almost, um, and discoveries being made all the time and new ideas being brought to the table and society and culture being challenged and changed actually fits really well with Star Trek. Partly because, and you mentioned First Contact, First Contact's a prime example. That's like a future renaissance, you know? The humans meet the Vulcans, and then they technologically... Well, actually, they technologically develop before that, don't they? And then they meet the Vulcans. But, you know, it's like this idea about a renaissance, but not on the planet. It's like a renaissance out into into the into the other worlds, you know, out into space, out, out into the ether, kind of. Like, off we go. We're... We're going to have another massive burst of of, of um, human development. And I feel like Voyager does kind of fit with that. I mean, obviously, they've been stranded and they're on the way home, but they're also venturing out further than almost any human or Starfleet vessels gone before. So they're also um, being propelled into this exploratory experience that does feel very much like a sort of Renaissance-type journey. And I think that... Um, it, the whole the whole of Star Trek is very much like that to go to boldly go where no man has gone before. I mean, it's almost like to think beyond the traditional confines of of your your society. You know, like I mean, Galileo is going boldly going. Maybe not where no man's gone before because obviously you said the theory did exist before he thought about it, but he's boldly going. I mean, and Leonardo da Vinci was definitely boldly going. These people are boldly going but they're not just not doing it in in a spaceship in space but they're doing it in other ways you know so it's that idea to be able to think beyond the status quo and say well why is this like this and and what if it's like that instead and what if this is true and what if this isn't true it's it's the ability to sort of think beyond what the world is telling you now and i think that is boldly going it's just doing it in spirit and in mind rather than in a starship. Which is exactly, of course, what we see at the very end of Next Gen, you know, in the final episode where we have Q basically saying to Picard, this is the real exploration. This is the important stuff, almost, is this idea that Picard can 
sort of think beyond this paradox that he can kind of um see things in a different way that he can reach some kind of understanding that is not on one level is not in keeping with his kind of rational understanding of how things work of cause and effect of kind of you know the 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 laws of, of physics and science and so on there's a there's a kind of leap maybe not a leap of faith but the kind of imaginative leap which is exactly what you see in the stories of those kind of you know great thinkers who really propelled our understanding of of reality and of the universe forward with these ideas and and absolutely i think it's true that star trek celebrates that kind of boldness as well as uh, uh, as well as the kind of going out into space and you know more kind of traditional sort of heroism and i mean one thing that this episode does absolutely is it kind of it shows the tragedy of of gagan and of and of galileo and of the scientist who's forced to recant their own uh, what they know to be true, who's basically forced to lie and to, su- to go along with suppressing the truth, um, because they've sort of been crushed by this political system in a sense. But you also get a sense of the kind of heroism of Gagan. I mean, up until the point where Voyage is going to be, you know, sent to the Voth kind of crusher machine, uh, the, the crew are going to all be detained indefinitely. You know, the, Star Trek Voyager as a series is going to come to a sudden and abrupt end, uh, because this super powerful, um, society have decided they're not going any further. They're not going to go back to the Alpha Quadrant. There's nothing they can do about it. Up till that point, he's putting everything on the line. He's, you know, he's ri- risking his own safety. He's risking imprisonment. He's risking, I mean, in Galileo's case, you know, there were people, there was someone who was burned at the stake for, for, you know, making heretical statements along similar lines. So, you know, this was pretty, uh, dangerous stuff. I mean, kind of going up against the Inquisition was not uh, a small thing, if you know what I mean. There is kind of heroism in that. And absolutely, I think in the Voyager episode, we see Gagan as quite a heroic character. Um, and you even have at one point in that trial, Chakotay basically trying to stop him and, and, and saying, don't, you know, be careful, don't push it, you know, don't, don't go too far. But he's insisting, you know, on his kind of commitment to, to truth that is almost a sort of higher calling. Um, unlike, say, his, his assistant who gets, you know, whether it's that they've threatened him or, or whatever it is that's going on ends up turning on him. Um, so there's the kind of tragedy of that, but there's also the kind of nobility of that, I suppose. Um, and I guess that's maybe what Galileo sort of represents in some ways. I mean, just coming back yet again to this idea of, you know, what is the myth of Galileo for us is this idea of this kind of scientist who, who knew what he said was right. And there's this, there's this myth again about him, which may or may not be true, as I understand it, that even after he'd recanted, that he muttered, um, something under his breath, he muttered these words, and yet it still turns, basically saying, you know, yeah, I'll go along with you. I'll do what I have to do. I'll accept the punishment. You know, I'll, 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 uh, you know, agree never to teach these things. I'll do whatever it is that I'm ordered to do, basically. But yet I know in my heart, the truth, you know, and ultimately, I suppose the the kind of consolation for the people in that situation is in time, society will change, the truth will come out eventually. Um, and I guess that's what we have to hope. Who knows, maybe in the Picard series, we'll meet the Voth in the Alpha Quadrant, they can get there pretty quickly anyway. And, uh, you know, it'll all be things will have improved or failing that at least in season three of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, we'll, we'll find out what they've been up to in the intervening whatever it is, 950 years or something, and maybe their society's improved a bit. I guess that's what we kind of have to hope. We have to hope that Gagan doesn't just die in obscurity and get forgotten and the distant origin theory just gets squished completely out of history uh, and that, that no one ever has a chance to discover the truth of it again. I think 
that is implied at the end of the, I mean, maybe it's not implied, but I felt like they left that at the end of the episode, they left it open for that to happen. I felt like eventually, yeah, Voss society would change and Gigan would be proved right, but maybe not in his lifetime. I mean, the thing about a lot of this is that science has long and far reaching sort of consequences, doesn't it? And science is something that goes beyond you as an individual. And I think that's kind of important that scientists understand that. And I would say most scientists do understand that, that obviously there's ego involved as well. If you're a scientist and you have a reputation and, you know, you want to win scientific prizes or be published or have your research, you know, validated or that kind of thing. But there's also an element there, which is that the work that you're doing goes beyond ego. So if you're going to have to prove something that maybe won't be accepted now, but it'll be accepted long after your death, then you have to understand that you may not see the benefits of it. You may not see the, the sort of changes that result as a, as a, uh, or changes that happen as a result of that sort of scientific theory being proven true and your work being proven, being proven true and accepted. Um, but that it will happen eventually. It's like the whole idea of planting a tree that you're never going to sit under. You know, who, who are you planting that tree for? Um, you're planting it for future generations. So even though Gagan. To bring it back to climate change yeah, yet again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it isn't just about what's happening now and how, how you, you, you benefit or you don't benefit from it. So maybe Gagan, uh, isn't going to have this satisfaction in his own lifetime. But at the end of the day, maybe his theory and his work will, um, lead to long-term change long after he's gone. And that's not satisfying for him. Um, it still means that scientific truth will win out in the end. Because, like, we, we, we know about Galileo. <laughs> you know, Galileo didn't fade into obscurity. Yeah, exactly. But also, I think, I mean, it's an interesting question. Is the ending a downer or is it kind of hopeful? My my feeling is that the final scene between Chakotay and Gagan gives hope to it. And it does it very symbolically with this gift of a globe. You know, Chakotay gives Gagan this quite beautiful sort of ornate little globe of Earth. And of course, in doing so, it kind of really underscores the fact that the goal for Gagan is the same as the goal for Voyager. It's to get to Earth somehow. And you know, that that image of Earth in Voyager has been given so much power and so much kind of meaning over you know the years that we've built up to this point because we know that is their most treasured goal in a sense is to, is to get home is to get back to earth and this idea that here's this alien species far away out in the depths of of deep space in a sense and they share our home and in a way on i mean they don't literally all need to go and live there but like in some way they have to get back to to earth as well so i think it's quite a clever trick in a sense that that the episode essentially aligns Gagan and with him kind of the the better nature of the Voth civilization with the goals of Voyager and with the kind of emotional uh, weight of all of that in this kind of symbolic gift. And so it's kind of, again, there's that sense of sort of hope and optimism for the future. I mean, Voyager could have been a pretty bleak series, you know, lost out in the Delta Quadrant, terrible things happening. In fact, Voyager is a very kind of um, sentimental 
fairly optimistic, fairly kind of, you know, we know they're going to get home essentially. And I suppose maybe that's, that's part of it. There, there's, there's some question mark. Are they going to become a generational ship? You know, you could say, is Janeway ever going to get home? I mean, if they had taken 70 years to get home, it would have been, you know, Naomi Wildman and Echeb probably running the ship by that point. And, uh, and the main crew that we know would have been uh, possibly long gone by then. But at the same time, the journey is in that direction. You know, Voyager is, always heading towards earth that's one that's the one constant in that show almost and i suppose that in itself has a kind of optimism baked into it and i think by lining gagan up with that kind of project in some ways it's it it kind of almost saying the same thing what you know one day something good will come out of this this will you know this this now is not forever and yeah again that links to what you were saying about climate change and that links to or the, you know, people now who are protesting about climate change and people who are trying to make a difference. And when they're questioned, they're saying, I'm doing this for my children or my grandchildren. Like I'm planting a tree that I will never be able to sit under, but that's, I'm not doing it just for me. So yeah, so there is this kind of, I mean, I guess you'd hope that the authorities and the establishments and the governments and the um, sort of systems of, of government and systems of organized, organized systems of government around the world, the ones like, like the Voth, you know, um, ministers, you'd hope they'd be able to see beyond the present and beyond their own interests and see beyond now and see that actually what you do now has a massive effect on the future. And that maybe if we try hard, really hard, and we look beyond our own, our own sort of interests and in ourselves, that maybe we could achieve a Star Trek future if uh, we start now though we need to start now <laughs> we need to contact the Vulcans start, <laughs> if we all start occupying bridges in London <laughs> and, and you know, developing as much trouble as possible warp engines yeah. so that we can yeah, meet the yeah. Vulcans because they really need to show up around about now <laughs> well no but no, the, 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 the eco-terrorists the eco didn't like the uh, the warp engines because they were damaging fabric of space we've got to come up with a, Some, a cleaner know, cleaner, cleaner alternative warp. really cleaner <laughs> Cleaner, well, greener. Discovery's done that yeah. for us, haven't it? With the spore drive. They have, yeah. So. Well, and, and Voyager, that's why they had those fancy nacelles that, that flipped up was to avoid that kind <laughs> of ecological damage. So Voyager trailblazing in the Delta Quadrant, trailblazing kind of, you, you know, eco message. Um, well, well, before we go, there was just one other thing that I thought it might be interesting to touch on. When I was looking into this, I was thinking, you, you know, obviously this is, is fairly explicitly a Galileo story. I mean, you, you know, as I mentioned, there's this story about how in the writer's room, they'd come up with this idea. Basically, this is one of these weird episodes where the, the genesis of it is sort of even more bizarre than the episode itself. It was one of these things where Bran and Braga, I think, had come up with this kind of action-heavy idea. And then they had to work out a way of kind of turning it into a Star Trek story. And uh, in the same way as apparently the um, the Killing Game two-parter basically just began with Bran and Braga saying, I want I want Nazis, I want explosions, I want to do <laughs> World War II. Uh, we need to find a way of turning that into a Star Trek story. In this instance, he had this idea. He wanted to have apparently dinosaurs with AK-47s. That was his, that was his kind of initial point. And he was like, "How do we do a story about dinosaurs with guns?" And it was going to be this kind of action-heavy thing all about the dinosaurs. Uh, and they were trying to work out how to do this this story. And then it was Rick Berman who came in and said, "I think you should make this a Galileo story." I don't I don't know what the like. There must have been something in between those two <laughs> things to to make sense of it. But anyway, that's why you got dinosaurs and you got Galileo. But but what interested me is thinking about you you know are there other Galileo uh, characters or or storylines in star trek and when i had a look i mean i think we could you know maybe this is something we could talk about on the babel conference because there are certainly other you know scientists who are kind of having a difficult 
time of it one way or another and others many stories in star trek of course of societies where dogma or religion i mean star trek is you know famously pretty anti certainly anti-dogma if not anti-religion in many cases pretty much anti-religion um and and stages these kind of debates you know over and over again which is one reason i think it's interesting this episode is actually not explicitly about religion it's about this kind of doctrine it's about this kind of story in a sense more than it is about any kind of supernatural or kind of spiritual thing or whatever but anyway so i had to look into it i was i was having a look fish around on memory alpha and and one thing that came up which uh made again the kind of link to evolution is the fact and i'd forgotten this but in the episode in the hands of the prophets there's actually a discussion about galileo because when um vedic win tries to close down keiko o'brien's school keiko responds uh this is quite a tough move i think by uh changing the curriculum to teach them all about galileo and teach them about galileo being persecuted and and jake comes home and says you know isn't it awful what they did to galileo can you believe what happened to galileo and he has this kind of discussion with cisco about how dreadful it is and the persecution that he endured at the hands of the church so very much i mean in that instance appropriating the galileo story very explicitly as science versus religion and religion sort of persecuting science uh which obviously is how keiko saw what was going on in that storyline but the other one that surprised me which hadn't occurred to me was um and this came from something that was on memory alpha was an interview with two of the writers from discovery eric lippelt and boyon kim uh who wrote amongst many other things in the most recent series of discovery wrote both the saru short trek which we talked about a little while ago and the saru heavy episode uh the sound of thunder and what they said was that they actually saw saru as a galileo character that's the way that they kind of um that was almost their kind of sort of archetype for for saru in some ways uh this is the quote it said we often imagined saru as the galileo of his people he was able to take a step back from the ingrained beliefs that his people had and see things from a new perspective but what happens if the galileo of your people is taken away by advanced aliens who show him a whole universe beyond what he knew and then when he returns to his home planet with his eyes fully open to the systemic oppression that's going on there and the means to do something about it and this of course brings us back to the prime directive and, and and so that's sort of where they went with that episode but so they basically on one level were conceptualizing that episode as like galileo gets picked up by the aliens you know from jupiter or whatever and shown the wonders of the universe and this is the sort of thing that happens in star trek you know we see it um you know in who watches the watchers or or in first contact or in one of those episodes where some free thinker in some ways is beamed up to the enterprise and shown the wonders of the future and then has to work out what to do with it but it just kind of it interested me i mean it's not a connection that would ever have occurred to me but i can see where they're coming from with that particularly in that short trek where it is very much like saru is the one kind of questioning the dogma questioning the kind of uh the practice uh saying you know getting interested in science you know he, he learns how to use that bit of technology and communicate with um giorgio and i just thought that was interesting that they again galileo was the kind of figure that they had sort of latched onto as this kind of influence on saru in that storyline yeah i think it's also mythologizing galileo though i think it's it's a sort of similar thing where pe- people i mean just randomly to draw parallels with this people do this with henry VIII. people sort of think that henry VIII left the church of rome um that he 
you know, separated England off from the Church of Rome, that they had, you know, created the Church of England because, you know, he had a problem with religion. He didn't have a problem with religion. He didn't, he wanted to marry. Needed a divorce. He wanted, no. needed a divorce and he wanted to marry <laughs> yeah. another woman. Um, and, and I think also part of him is ego wise. He didn't like being told, you know, what to do about the Pope and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's a very complicated political situation and it caused a, a religious crisis, but, and obviously it changed religion in the UK forever and changed religion for the success of kings and queens and, Led to a credible amount of death, um, <laughs> over, over, over hundreds of years afterwards. But, uh, he wasn't, like, he wasn't a Puritan, you know, and it's not like, and Galileo wasn't, like, wasn't like Galileo stopped believing in God. You know, it wasn't like he turned around one day and said, I'm an atheist, which is kind of what Saru did. Like, Saru, it didn't just, you know, have a different idea about the world. He had, it was like a three, Total 360 degree turn to a completely different way of seeing the world. Almost like he'd been seeing the world completely differently from everybody for a long time. I'm not sure if that really is Galileo. Galileo was actually quite a devout Catholic. Uh, Henry VIII was a devout Catholic. The pe- they, these people changed certain things. They had different views on certain things, but it's not like they completely and utterly rejected the religion of their society. You know, I mean, they still adhered to the religious values that they had grown up with. You know, and we're talking about really devout people. I mean, Henry VIII was like praying like five times a day. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, if we went, we went back and asked Galileo, like, what do you think about us, you know, having evolved from monkeys? I'm not sure Galileo would really appreciate that. I mean, like, I, I think he still believed that God had, you know, God had a place in a human, human life. Would you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, so I think we tend to think of these people as these like trailblazing, brave individuals. I mean, no one thinks of Henry VIII this way, but you know, we tend to think of pe- these people like this, like trailblazing individuals who just kind of, you know, have completely and utterly broken out from their world. I'm not sure that actually is what these people are doing. I think what they're doing is they're questioning certain parts of, of, of established doctrine you know or certain scientific ideas i mean i think for galileo it was very intellectual and i understand what the discovery writers writers were trying to do and i think that's nice but um i definitely did not associate siri with galileo not in the slightest and i still don't i think it's i think i think i mean i can see what they're trying to do maybe it's good that they did i suppose but i thought it was a, i thought that's a real stretch i don't think galileo galileo wanted to leave italy and you know set up some utopian colony somewhere else in the world where nobody worshipped God and everybody sort of, I don't know, studied the celestial bodies or something. Or, or like, he wasn't... Yeah. He, he wasn't really trying to change society no, in that no, sense, I don't yeah. think. He just was observing that something was wrong and saying, look, we need to correct this thing. And I think really the, the tragedy for Galileo, in a sense, is... You know, he didn't really think the church would get involved. He didn't really think it was their fight. He wasn't directly saying there was anything wrong with the Bible. He wasn't, he wasn't kind of, he wasn't going after them. It was the philosophers that he was arguing with. He was saying, look, this Aristotelian concept of, uh, the solar system is just wrong and we need to change it and, and correct that, you, you know, and replace that with something else. But that wasn't in itself a kind of, move against religion really it was only because religion and and that philosophy had become kind of uh enmeshed in certain ways and ultimately the church kind of came in on the side of the philosophers um unfortunately for galileo because as you said the church was incredibly powerful at that time i loved your idea though of uh you, you know what would galileo make <laughs> make of the of the kind of monkey theory i mean like 
surely there is an episode of Star Trek waiting to happen. Uh, you know, we saw data on the holodeck with Isaac Newton and, um, and Stephen Hawking. They seem to get on all right, but you know, if, uh, if Janeway d- decides to do her kind of scientist version and I don't know, have, cucumber sandwiches with Galileo and Darwin are they going to fall to blows at some point or or do we hope that Galileo is such a kind of um you know beacon of, of science that a fellow scientist even saying something completely outrageous to him I suppose the Star Trek answer would be he's a scientist somehow that's like you know science is burned into his heart if a fellow scientist says something then just like Janeway in this episode who doesn't question for a second what a ridiculous premise this is just says Right. Okay. The DNA, DNA analysis says this. Let's go down to the holodeck. Let's pull up some dinosaurs. Yep. Okay. Yeah. This all makes sense. Fine. Uh, this is my distant cousin, uh, a hadrosaur from the Delta Quadrant and is just like, no question. That, that would be the Star Trek answer is that's how you would expect Galileo to react. But I suspect you're right. In reality, you know, these are human beings with their own prejudices and their own blinkers on of their time. And you, you know, just as any science from the future you know, seems like magic after a certain, you know, with a, a certain uh, difference of of time going into it. These kind of cultural ideas which are attached to science, you know, science is not just about the technical, it's not just about the scientific things. It does have a, sci- a sort of um, philosophical or a kind of doctrinal ramification. And obviously you see that here with the the idea that saying that the earth is not the centre of the universe somehow sort of seems to work against the kind of religious orthodoxy, even if it's not explicitly contradicting anything. As Galileo saw it, it's not undermining the whole story, but it's kind of, it's true that it's kind of slightly complicating. It's going against received wisdom and certain ideas about us being at the centre of the universe and, 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 you know, and equally, you know, not only is the earth at the centre of the universe, but human beings are at the centre of earth. You know, we were there in the Garden of Eden. We were the kind of the important ones. We're the chosen ones. All these other animals are just there for decoration or for us to eat or, you know, whatever it is. You know, equally Darwin is kind of disproving that idea. Suddenly, not only is the earth at the centre of the universe, but humans aren't even at the centre of the earth. They're, you know, just what we've ended up with. And I suppose all these ideas are very challenging because they challenge our ideas of who we are and how important we are. And they sort of chip away at that importance, which I guess is exactly what the Voth are experiencing with this idea of, you, you know, are they refugees? Are they immigrants? They're, they're not who they thought they were on some level, or at least they feel that discovering this truth about their past is going to change who they are in the present. And it's going to change, you know, in the same way as people felt that discovering that we were, you know, discovering the truth about evolution somehow makes us less human. And I suppose science and Star Trek and, you know, those of us who are hopefully more enlightened have to accept that even when scientific truths or new truths come along that are unpalatable or are surprising or go against what our expectations are, they can't change who we are now. They can't change the kind of, um, you know, these kind of fundamental, they don't make, it doesn't make us less to know more. And I suppose that's the kind of, um, you know, on one level, that's the sort of key message of this episode. I mean, the only thing I would ask is, is there an example in Star Trek of the Federation or Starfleet or a crew being this sure about something and then being proven wrong scientifically? And I think the only example I can really think of in recent Star Trek would be the Tardigrade. You know, this belief that the Tardigrade is not a really sentient creature, that it is actually just this like, sort of savage beast 
And that belief is held actually by some Starfleet officers. And it is actually, I think it's Michael who is the one who sort of thinks outside the box and observes the creature. And doesn't she get, doesn't she get Culber involved? And they start to realize that the Tardigrade is more sentient than they thought he was, than they thought yeah. it was. Well, that goes back even to Devil in the Dark is almost the same story. It's that kind of, you, you know, seeing that the, the, the monster well, isn't, that's a good example. isn't necessarily a monster after all. I mean, I would say in terms of these kind of societal things, maybe what you see in Voyager with holographic rights, um, although I feel like that's a story that Star Trek never kind of, finish telling in a sense but i suppose that's an example of something you know from tng onwards we've had all these holograms everywhere you know we had the holodecks become this kind of major part of star trek storytelling all these characters were kind of given to understand they're not really people then you start having these characters like the doctor and vic who patently are real people and it creates this kind of philosophical ethical uh societal problem they've got this society which in the space of however many years has become very reliant on these people or if you call them on on these entities and suddenly you know much more so than with data in the measure of a man because with data in the measure of a man it's one person and i know the whole like uh weight of that episode is you know if the finding goes against him then it might become this race of data it might become this kind of uh disposable slave race or whatever but in Voyager, it almost does it the other way around. Like it, the technology, which I think is more realistic, is this kind of creeping use of technology to the extent that suddenly there are holograms everywhere. And it's only when there are holograms everywhere that suddenly some people start questioning, actually, are we doing the right thing here? Do these holograms have some kind of rights? You know, do we need to, to rethink that? And I suppose that maybe is an instance where, you know, Janeway as the kind of arch scientist is initially very skeptical about any rights that the doctor might have. She's totally, you know, no, it's just a machine, you know. Doesn't she uh, call him a toaster? It's a waste of my time almost. Did she? I don't know if she called. Does, does she, she call him a toaster? She says he's not, not unlike a replicator, which I suppose is. Oh, and yeah, there's that also. Pretty much. Yeah, the, and there's also <laughs> the that other episode. Thing. Yeah, met replicator, maybe not toaster. That would be a bit cruel. Although. You're thinking of Battlestar Galactica. I think of Battlestar Galactica, yeah. Well, that's an example, actually. <laughs> yeah, right, where, yeah. um, the, you know, the, there's this established idea that these, you know, the Cylons aren't real and they're not sentient they're not people mm. and they actually are people but there's also that isn't there that episode where data where everybody believes these little uh sort of droids uh who are uh, the exocomps exocomps yeah. yeah um don't have any sort of concept of self and it turns out the exocomps mm. do and then so then mm. aren't they creatures like living beings um or at least artificial intelligence and um mm. and that that theory that theory is only really kind of championed by data for quite a while i think isn't it and then eventually everybody else starts to but it, actually you're right in most cases in star trek it's some other society that's having to face this it's not actually starfleet officers because in starfleet science is like the main sort of philosophy the main sort of exploration and doubting and questioning and trying discovering and investigating is the main sort of philosophy so it's not like they're kind of going around imposing dogma on their officers or anything it's an interesting question though and i'm sure you know if we had longer we could we could try and think our way through it it'd be an interesting conversation to continue in the babel conference maybe you know what other kind of where does Star Trek show us these kind of society shaking discoveries in a sense? And I suppose it is often around religion. I mean, if you think of, you know, all those, I know something like the apple 
uh, or or even Devil's Due in Next Gen. You know, these societies, societies kind of in you know held held in a particular place by some kind of dogmatic or religious belief that are being liberated from that or freed from it. And often, I suppose that is a case of science to the rescue. I mean, certainly in something like Devil's Due, it's like literally, it's a case of proving okay we can again you know use this holographic technology or whatever to simulate the same things as the as the religious figure is doing and therefore the religion is you know hokum but it would be interesting i i can't off the top of my head i mean i can think of times where they discover something you know for example they discover the spore drive is damaging the the mycelium or whatever and so that maybe <laughs> you might think would influence uh what happens going for i know it's more complicated they 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 complicated that storyline you know etc it was actually maybe it was culber that was doing it whatever you might think with something like that actually yeah there'd be there'd be the like uh you know spore drive damaged skeptics on board <laughs> saying well i don't you know i don't believe any of that you, you know i think this is perfectly safe and you know we've been using spore drive for over a year now and i haven't seen any damage to the mycelium network uh yeah there's a kind of so science is the the greater authority i suppose in star trek isn't it and you, you know you can science the science and work out the the truth of it and kind of make sense of it and barring those few episodes where there's a kind of uh like in sacred ground where janeway has to kind of to some extent put science to one side and not look for the scientific rational explanation broadly speaking star trek shows science coming to the rescue uh but it would be interesting to think about you know are, are there other episodes where the science leads to a conclusion that is not really what anyone wanted or what anyone was hoping for and that really shakes things up one way or another and that is you know that is an interesting storyline because science can do that we don't necessarily find out what we were looking for what we were hoping to discover you know at least the the idea of it is that we find out what's really there and that may not be what we wanted you know just as people may not have wanted to learn that we were descended from monkeys or that the Voth didn't want to learn that they were descended from, you know, dinosaurs on Earth. I mean, it, it, we don't necessarily get what we want. We, you, you know, that's that's kind of part of the bargain, I suppose, of of signing up to the sort of scientific project. Yeah, the truth is the truth, and out there. yeah, it's out there, and uh, it, it's going to be what it is, regardless of how you feel about it. Hard times. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about religion, science, philosophy, dinosaurs. Uh, but that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I, I really like that concept of Titan being an extremely diverse ship because, yeah, like like you say, you know, we see mostly either humans or aliens who look like humans or have, you know, forehead appliances and that sort of thing. So to really get to stretch that and show us something new and different, I think is really cool. Standard Orbit. Pike, he was like a pseudo father figure to Kirk in the Kelvin timeline, which might have been a little on the nose because he's like, he, the previous captain is the father figure of the new captain. But I understood why they did it. You know, for story efficiency, and and I did really buy their bond. You know, Bruce Greenwood and Chris Pine. I bought that bond. Earl Grey. There's a line where Diana says to O'Brien, I think it is. Um, mm -hmm. Is that the same as a, a super string? He's like, oh no, no, no. He's like, no, no, no. They're completely different. <laughs> it's totally different. Uh -huh. Yeah, obviously. The orb. One of the things I was just really struck by is just the way in which this episode is so 
relevant today. And part of that has been the unfortunate way in which our culture has changed for the worse um, to see this happen in, in much more regularity of people jumping on something and jumping on things, even though they may not have all of the information, but believing something to be true, even without all the pieces of evidence to actually make it true. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.